Well, for anyone who has not been following along, uh, I've begun a short series of sermons on how Christians should think about Israel in light of all that's been going on. And the first sermon explained that biblically we must understand that the New Testament revolutionized the way that uh, Jewish thought perceived Israel. Like we think differently because of what the New Testament says. Uh, and we found that Israel, as we move forward into the New Testament, is much more of a, a spiritual concept than a racial one. It's not just talking about race. It's talking about a spiritual idea that is behind the, the, this understanding, this concept of Israel. So the children of the promise are those who receive the fulfillment of the promise by faith. Okay. And in the last sermon, we saw that the promise, the fulfillment of Israel, strictly speaking, refers to one offspring. Remember, Paul uses that weird grammar when he says it's not, it doesn't say offsprings, it says offspring, uh, meaning not many. And that offspring is Christ. Okay? Jesus is the offspring that Israel has been waiting for. So that leaves us now with perhaps even more questions about how we should relate to the present Israel that does not receive the promise of Jesus. They, they do not receive Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. Ethnic Israel today rejects the Messiah. So the big question is, is, well, how do we think about that as Christians? What do we think about this? Well, in a couple of days or earlier, many of you are going to be gathered around a table of friends and family to celebrate Thanksgiving. And everyone knows that there are two big rules at holidays that you should not break in order to keep the peace of the household. Don't discuss politics and religion. Okay, Because I have yet to go to a holiday gathering where people actually keep this rule, I, I'm preaching in order to help try to prepare you as a congregation how you might broach this topic if it comes up, because it's likely to come up. So suppose the current war in Israel does come up at the dinner table at Thanksgiving. What would you say? In light of some of the things that we've been thinking about, what should Christians think about it? Okay, This is something I want you to wrestle with and actually think out for yourself. For those who are here uh, for the prior sermons, I hope that you're realizing as you think about this that there's a needed care and nuance to this discussion. It's not as easy as a lot of people are acting like it is. Our culture is very wrapped up in bifurcations and dichotomies. Those are two big fancy words to basically say we like to think in split thinking. Like it's one of the two things. We have two parties, right? Pick one. You can't pick both. Uh, you are left or are you, you are right. Pick one. You can't be both. Uh, you are conservative or you are liberal. Pick one. You are pro-Israel or you're pro-Hamas. Pick one. Okay? There doesn't seem to be much wiggle room on an in-between or any nuance here. It's you're this or that, and you must fit into that box. So this morning, as we keep talking about Israel, I want to give you the freedom to not always pick a prefabricated side. Because the moment that you do is the moment that you will be put in a box, and if you start to uh, break the rules or push on the walls, you'll be thrown out into the other side, and then you'll find, oh, I don't fit here either. And, and what we're, we do is we, we get wrapped up in this way of thinking that isn't even true to ourselves. It's trying to be true to other people. And part of the freedom that we have in Christ is not conforming to the world or its systems or standards. Second Corinthians 10 says this, for we, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we're humans, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, right? In a, in a human and intangible way. For the weapons of our warfare, you've heard this before, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? You think about that. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments. This is, in some sense, saying we're, we're speaking even philosophically, and we're taking down every lofty opinion and say, how does this come back to Jesus? How does this come back to Christ? In other words, we don't regard things according to human conventions. We think Christianly, in a Christocentric way. And what I mean by this is not that you can't ever be decisive, because thinking Christianly might somehow mean nuancing everything into oblivion. That's not what I'm saying. We, we should be able to form an opinion, but rather what I am saying is you ought to be able to form a Christian perspective on this subject or that, whatever the subject might be, without picking one of the red, white, or blue news agencies' narratives. Right? You should be able to think about things for yourself and not fit into all the box. Now, some of you might be thinking in your mind, I just said red, white, and blue news agencies. You're thinking, I know red. I know blue. What's the white? Well, I said white because uh, there are many even Christian news agencies uh, that aren't any more accurate than the red or the blue ones. Right? They proclaim to be Christian, but they're not necessarily even biblical or thinking biblically about things. There are very, very few sources that you can trust anymore for the truth. I'm not saying that all the Christian news agencies out there are wrong. I'm just saying that, that, that there's, that's all the more reason to have built a biblical and Christ-centered worldview, worldview that is able to speak to the issues and let us, instead of letting someone else speak for you. Instead of, well, I heard this the other day, and just spouting off what the news headline says. doesn't matter what it came from. That tends to be the way that we interact at like Thanksgiving. Well, I heard this. I heard that on this news. And we just talk about the different news people, and we let the news talk for us, and we don't actually think through things Ourselves. So instead of telling you what to think at Thanksgiving, I'm going to continue to open up the Bible and speak to this subject to help us navigate for ourselves how you ought to think about Israel now in light of what's been going on. So we're going to read the entirety of Romans 11 to help us continue to think more about how we might posture ourselves towards Israel today. Romans 11, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are... Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without a word on this issue. We thank you that you have spoken clearly to us through the apostolic witness. And Lord, we ask now that you would inspire us by the same Holy Spirit that inspired this to be originally written and given to the church, the Gentile church. Lord, we as mostly Gentiles, if not all Gentiles this morning, ask that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you that you have included us. And we now turn to you to continue to help us to think moving forward in our lives, how we ought to think about Israel, but remembering that we must think about it through the lens of Jesus. Let us stay focused on him this morning. We ask this all in his name. Amen.
So, has God rejected the Jews? It's a big question, right? What you find as you read this passage is that Paul is kind of climbing out of his own hole that he's dug. In previous chapters, he's argued strongly for a spiritual reading of Israel. And this is where we've been looking at in the past couple sermons. Remember, he says that not all that descend from Israel are Israel. He says this just two chapters four, uh, before in Romans 9. So Paul, being the sharp thinker that he is, realizes he still needs to give an answer to how we think of the unbelieving Jews. Okay, What about those who say they're Israel, but they don't believe in the Messiah? Because if you don't hear his argument out well enough, you might be led to think that the Gentiles have replaced Israel. Okay, I addressed this last time. It's not so much a replacement, but you can start to think that way if you think about Israel from a spiritual perspective. Not true, he says. Israel, The Gentiles haven't replaced the Jews. Okay, While they have been grafted in and included in Israel and are even the majority of Israel from a spiritual perspective, he's making it clear that moving forward, the church is not going to be exclusively Gentile or Jewish. Okay, Yes, God has hardened the hearts of the majority of the Jews, but there remains a remnant of Jews who still believe in the Messiah. And Paul uses himself as an example here. He, he says that I'm an ethnic Israelite. Okay, I, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm a real Israelite. But I also believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel. So no one can say that God has rejected or cut off ethnic Israel completely. Paul serves as the example to say that's not true. They are not the discontinued product of grace who have been replaced with grace 2.0, Gentile edition. That's not what has happened here. God is still in the business of saving Jews too. He's saving all people actually at this point. But the takeaway in Romans 11 isn't that God still chooses Jews for salvation because they are somehow ethnically or racially preferred or that God is really impressed by any observance of the law that they're doing. That's not why God's still choosing Jews to be saved, is what Paul is getting at. Instead, he argues before this, in Romans 3 and later, here that Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners in the eyes of God. You're familiar with Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the, the, the context there is he's saying, you too, Jews. It's not just the Gentiles. We're all sinners. And he says here in chapter 11, he has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all people. He says this in verse 32. Interesting the way he says that. It's, it's kind of peculiar. And what his point is, though, is that the only people that are saved will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this wonderful mystery is now revealed to us in Jesus. This is the only way moving forward. So, if God is still saving some Jews, but not all the Jews are saved, then what in the world does it mean in verse 26, when Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved? What does this mean? Well, here again, he's expressing the culmination of his argument about the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles and God's redemptive plan. They both constitute Israel, but only by faith in Christ. That's how they're able to both be Israel. And in the context of this passage, all Israel does not necessarily refer to every individual Jew without exception. That's not what it's saying. Instead, it signifies the entirety of the faithful remnant within Israel. There's a sector within Israel. So throughout chapter 11 here, Paul has been discussing the concept of what he calls a remnant, a group of Israelites who have remained faithful to the Messiah 
despite the majority of dissenters who reject the Messiah. And he goes on to talk about Elijah and how this same thing kind of happened in the Old Testament. He's, he's saying that here it is again. So in verse 5, he mentions, so too at the present time there is a remnant, which is like a small group, chosen by grace. And remember, he uses himself as an example to prove this point. So he's kind of saying, see, I'm here and I'm a Jew. So the phrase, all Israel will be saved, suggests then that in the end, the complete and faithful remnant of Israel, representing the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, will experience salvation. Okay, this is in harmony with Paul's earlier argument about the hardening of some of Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. The hardening is partial and it's temporary until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. Then, in God's plan, the focus turns back to the restoration and salvation of the faithful within ethnic Israel. But it isn't necessarily saying that every individual Jew alive at a certain point in history will be saved. It's speaking more towards a, a, pro a progressive ful fulfillment of the total number of Jews. Just as there's a period for the fullness of the Gentiles, right? That's kind of what we're working out now. Jew or Gentiles are progressively being saved. It wasn't that all at once the Gentiles were saved and then in the future all at once the Jews will be saved. This is a progressive unfolding of where more and more Gentiles are coming in and then one day it will turn back and more and more Jews will come back in. Okay, But they're all coming into one thing. That's, that's what I want you to, to get more than anything out of this sermon is that we're all coming into one thing. That is Christ. Recall back to John 10 when Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And he says this in contrast to the bad shepherds of Israel. These are the people who, Paul would say, these are the, the people who have not believed. These are the people that have been cut off. These are the unbelieving. And Jesus says, well, I am the good shepherd, and the sheep know my voice, and they follow me, he says. But lest we think that he's talking about the Jews here, which I, I know many people believe that he's talking about the Jews, he also opens up the future of the Gentiles by saying in John 10, 16, and I quote, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So we have this concept of a couple sheep. We have sheep here, and then sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So you kind of get this idea of their calling and being obedient to the voice of Jesus. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. Not one shepherd and two flocks. Okay? That's that's where a lot of people actually land, is they believe that Jesus is the good shepherd of the church and Israel, these two flocks. But Jesus says, no, they are one and the same. And they're only one and the same because they are following the voice of Jesus, who is the good shepherd, who is Israel, rightly understood. And it is this unity of the two that drives Paul at the end of this chapter to overflow into doxological expression. He's just worshiping at the end of this, pouring out praise to God. He sees the glory of the two people previously divided, right? This is the Old Testament. The nations were over here and God's people were over here. But now they're being unified under one shepherding of Jesus and Paul can't keep his worship in. He's blown away by it. He's amazed by it. So, so Paul sees, and he wants you to see too, that there are not two flocks and one shepherd. There is one flock, one shepherd. And this is consistent with what we've been reading through all of the New Testament, isn't it? That all are one in Christ, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4 says. Oneness is what Jesus desires. Oneness is the teaching of Christianity. and It is oneness in Christ. 
But here, here's where the rub is. We have to learn how to hold up these two biblical statements that we've kind of been looking at. On the one hand, we have to say, because the Bible does, all Israel will be saved, Romans 11:26. But also, but not all that descend from Israel belong to Israel, Romans 9, 6. These two verses have to be able to come together, and they can only be understood as the harmonization of Jew and Gentile under one heading of Israel in Christ Jesus. That's the only way that this makes sense biblically in the New Testament. Now, you know, you know how if you're looking at something at a glance, maybe I, I find this that, that I, uh, this happens more in the morning to me, kind of when I'm rolling out of bed, before I put my glasses on, you look at something out of focus at a glance, and there appears to be kind of two images in front of you. They're kind of floating around, but then after your eyes focus for some time, and you view it longer, and you realize it's one, okay? The, the, there was two out here, and it's kind of like where your eyeballs are kind of syncing up and realizing that there, there's one vision, okay? And that's something of what has happened to us in Christ, where one eye is hyper-focused and only sees Jews, and then the other eye is hyper-focused and only seeing Gentiles in an out-of-focus and kind of blurry way. We learn to put on our gospel glasses to where we start to see everything come through the redemptive lens of Christ, where Jesus syncs these two things up, to where we're not seeing with one eye over here and one eye over here. We're seeing like you do with both of your two eyes. You have a left eye and a right eye, but they're all seeing what? One vision. There's one vision, not a left eye opinion and a right eye opinion that each are kind of doing their own thing. It's all one with your one vision. So we need to stop our, our one-eyed, out-of-focus vision and see that God is working out one plan of redemption in Christ Jesus that does include both Jews and Gentiles, but only through that lens of the gospel. That's the way that we need to look at all this. So the question no longer remains, are, a, are you a Jewish or a Gentile Christian? It's just, are you a Christian? Or not? But we, we are asking the wrong questions if we're still hyper-focused on the Jew-Gentile thing. And let me tell you what this does. This employs a Pauline tactic that I alluded to in the beginning. There, there's a pressure to think dichotomously about everything, okay? Uh, where there's this pressure to, to, to still ask Jew or Gentile when we start looking through uh, Christianity. And, but that really doesn't get to the bottom of the issue, does it? Just like asking Republican or Democrat doesn't really get to the issues, does it? It really just stalls the question. It stalls the answer. It stalls to where we can't move forward if we're just staying in these boxes. And what you need to, uh, is to provoke both sides to a deeper and unified vision that answers the longings of both sides. We haven't asked enough questions. If you're just stopping at Republican or Democrat, everyone knows you're not getting anywhere. Right? So what we need to do is ask genuine, meaningful questions that actually make you both dig deeper to where you can find unity. And this is what Paul does in saying that through the Gentiles being grafted in, all Israel will be saved. His tactic calls both Jews and Gentiles to think deeper in Christ Jesus and find ultimate unity in him. He is the fulfillment of Israel that starts to make sense of both sides. Even from their own perspective, they still can say at the end of the day, Oh, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the plan. This is where we're going for salvation. And many Jews, though, they'll reject this. Okay, that's, that's just what the New Testament says. Experientially, that's what we've seen. Many Jews will reject this. But that does not prove the unfaithfulness of God towards Israel. Okay? It proves that they have cut themselves off from the tree in their unbelief. Okay? But Paul also speaks of this as a temporary hardening of the Jews. It appears from Romans 11 that there will continue to be a remnant of ethnic Israel that are saved, but despite of their ethnic background. 
Okay, they're saved, but they're not saved because they're Jews. Does that make sense? Okay, and Paul's evangelistic tactic is to provoke jealousy to bring this about. This is where I kind of want to shift to this morning. And the main focus is Paul uses jealousy to save these Gentiles. Three times in this and the previous chapter, Paul speaks of making the Jews jealous in order that he might save some of them. So he says, by magnifying my ministry to the Gentiles, he uses this as a, a tool to provoke the Jews into an envious ache that leads them to salvation, where they're longing for something to be satisfied. It's the, the oddest missions tool that I think I've ever heard of, but it's inspired, and Paul's given it to us. Okay? And he's given it to us in his word, and he's even saying, this is kind of my, my, my tactic. This is my, my strategy in the ways that I'm going to be a minister to the Gentiles and to the Jews. I'm going to provoke them to jealousy. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration. For those of you who have kids in the room or have watched kids before, you're very familiar with how kids act when there's toys involved. Now, have you ever seen a child who grow, grew bored of his toy? It was his toy, and he grew bored of it, and eventually stopped playing with it, but is immediately provoked to jealousy when another kid picks it up. All right, we've seen this before. There's a sudden reinvigorated uh, interest in this beloved toy of his. Oh, my goodness, he's playing with my toy. And what's the first thing that you hear when all this transpires? Hey, that's mine. Yes, that's mine. This is how I think about the jealousy of the Jews and what Paul is doing here. He's provoking them to have this reinvigorated interest in what they should have been longing for all along and satisfied in all along. And it's been right there in front of them, and they've kind of tossed it to the side and decided to do their own thing. The thing is, is that Jews aren't jealous of our Gentile toys, okay? When we think we're thinking in this analogy, they're not jealous about our bacon, okay? Let's just be honest. They've been raised differently. They're not longing for all the Gentile stuff that we have, or we are doing over here as Gentiles. That isn't what makes them jealous, that they don't get to have uh, pork, that they can't uh, do this. That doesn't make them jealous. In fact, they're often repulsed by Gentile Christianity. But what causes jealousy in the Jews is when we begin playing with their toys. That's what provokes jealousy. When we lay claim to the covenants, to the promises to the patriarchs, to the new temple in Jesus, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the salvation from our sins. When we, when we say, hey, that's mine, and we start playing with it, they say, hold on a minute. That's mine. And Paul's point is for them to say, that's mine. And he says, yes, exactly. This is for you. This has been there for you all along. Why have you rejected it? Why haven't you seen it? Why haven't you seen that Jesus is all of that for you? So, so we claim the name Israel, and this is what gets the Jews stirred up more than anything. When Christians say, we are the Israel of God, it burns through them in a kind of righteous, jealous way. Okay, So, so how, you might ask, can you employ this missions tactic into your everyday living? How are you going to, to take this scripture in Romans 11 and put it boots on the ground to where you're actually having a heart for the Jews like Paul? Well, here's a practical way. Some from our uh, congregation actually have Jewish family. Okay? That might surprise you, but I, there are people in this room that have Jewish family who are actually going to be encountering Jewish thinking. And to those people, I would encourage you to lean into the Old Testament promises being fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? When the Jewish friend of yours or family member of yours longs for a rebuilding of the temple, 
tell him the good news of Jesus and how they destroyed the true, true temple of Jesus. And in three days, guess what? They rebuilt it. Jesus resurrected on the third day. The temple has been rebuilt in Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that he is the real thing and he is the, 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 the true substance of things that were to come. Then the old were the shadows. The temple was the shadow, but Jesus is here. The Messiah has come. The temple has been rebuilt. We can worship in Jesus. We're not going to this mountain or that mountain. We are in Jesus. When a Jew longs for a coming high priest to make atonement for their sins, they've been for almost 2,000 years now without a high priest. Remind them that Jesus is the great high priest who has already come to offer a one-time sacrifice sufficient for all. It's finished. It's done. A high priest has done it, and he can intercede for your sins right now. He can do that right now. When, when a Jew longs for animal sacrifices to be reinstated, for the temple to come back, to point them to Jesus. Show how he is the sacrifice that has already come. He is the Passover lamb that you've been waiting for. When they long for a promised offspring of Abraham who would bless the world, turn their eyes to Jesus. When they're looking for Elijah to return, because that's a good indicator of when the Messiah will come, say, Jesus already told us that he came. Jesus said he was John the Baptist, if you will receive it. Why haven't you received it yet? Why aren't you taking the indicators that Jesus shows us he has come when they long for a king again, like King David? What a wonderful king he was, the Jews will say. And he was a great king, but he was only a shadow of the better king to come, who was Jesus Christ himself, the king who reigns in pure justice, never, never tripped up once. When they long for a holy land, point them to Jesus, who has inherited all the nations, not just Israel, okay? all of it. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. When they long for the good old days of the Old Testament, tell them that it is all now realized in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen, only in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He is everything that they long for. He is the, the fulfillment of it all. So that's how you would handle a Jew. If you're, you're interacting with them, show them that Jesus is that thing that makes them ache, that can satisfy that need. Now, much more likely, though, is that many of you have Christians in your family that aren't Jews, but think very much like them. Okay, this is what we commonly run into, is Christians who start to think and adopt Jewish thinking. And like the Jews, they also have a constant ache that one day God will powerfully uh, work among them and fulfill what they believe to be promised, but yet unfulfilled. They, too, await a, a physical rebuilding of the temple. They await a mass revival of Judaism as a religion with bloody sacrifices and all. Many Christians even financially support this endeavor of this rebuilding of the temple. They're paying money to help the Jews rebuild to somehow usher in the return of Christ. There are Christians who do this. Now, I don't believe that's a sin, and I'm not necessarily preaching against those who do that, but here is where I want to ask if they are doing and if that tactic is doing what Paul was doing in his ministry to the Jews. How does supporting a contrary religion provoke unbelieving Jews to jealousy in any way? Okay, my contention is, is that in the 21st century, for the most part, many Christians haven't taken ownership of the Old Testament promises fulfilled in Jesus as they should have. They've almost given the whole Bible to the Jews again and say, yes, you're right, none of that's uh, fulfilled yet. And this is especially so since 1948 when the state of Israel became a nation. When the Gentile church is picked up the Jewish toy, and the Jew in his jealousy says, hey, that's mine. We as Gentiles, on the whole, have said, oh, right, sorry. 
In many ways, we don't even claim any of the old things. We have this kind of separate religion where we're Christianity and Judaism's over here. And it's almost like God's going to work out their stuff over here and he's going to work out our, our stuff over here. We don't see them as one vision working together in Jesus. So let me ask you, church, how is it that ethnic Israel is going to be provoked to jealousy and eventually believe if the Christians already act as if there isn't anything for unbelieving Israel to do? What are they going to be jealous of? And in many ways, the church supports their unbelieving Jewish endeavors. We, we don't call them to repent as we should uh, and don't believe uh, that we should be calling them to Christ as we should. We are funding their religion that fundamentally rejects the Messiah. And there are Christian news agencies that are taking Christians' money to say, hey, we'll help this. We'll help rebuild Judaism. And they all the while, the Jews are like, thanks. Why are you doing that? But there are Christians that still do that still do this. And in many ways, we don't claim the name of Israel of God. We let them have it, and they blaspheme the, the name of Jesus while we do this. It's, it's sad. And in short, we don't follow Paul. Uh, we don't follow Paul's leading uh, in causing any jealousy in the Jews. In fact, in many ways, I know Christians that are jealous of the Jews. Have you met Christians before where they're like, "Oh, they're the holy people. They're the people who are in, in Israel. They're, those are the people who walk." Where Jesus walked. We have somehow inverted Paul's mission to the Jews and ourselves become a jealous people, and it should not be so. For we have, in many ways, been jealous of God's ancient people. Now, if you tell the Jews that they are God's chosen people, you don't, you don't provoke them to anything but entitlement. And, and that's going to, frankly, if you're not calling them to repentance and you're, you're making Jews feel safe as God's people and not calling them to anything, where does that lead them? Will that lead them to salvation? No, that, that's not what Jesus did in his ministry either. He let them know that you can't presume upon your heritage for salvation. That will lead you to hell. If the Jew believes he's saved because Abraham is his distant relative and he's kept up the law to the best of his ability, you're not being faithful to your calling to preach the good news to them. You can't understand the good news of the gospel until you understand the bad news. That's, that's the fact of the gospel. You can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. And unless you repent of your dead works and believe in Jesus Christ as your righteousness, you will not be saved. That is the only way to the Father, through the Son, through repentance and faith. This is a, a bold statement, but I'm going to stand by it because we get it from our scripture today. Unless you see the Jews as enemies of the gospel, as regards the gospel, you don't understand your mission to them. Unless you see the Jews as enemies as regards the gospel, you don't understand your mission to them. Okay, but verse 28 has two sides to that very strong statement. It doesn't just say that we're enemies of the Jews. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not leading the next Nazi journey, Germany. I'm not trying to uh, evoke any anti-Semitism. I'm trying to get you to understand that we need to be thinking through the lens of the gospel. And when we do that, that means that they don't believe the same way that we do. And we need to touch that point, not ignore that. Okay, so as regards to the gospel, it says in verse 28, the Jews are our enemies. But when it comes to election, they are beloved, it says. So we have to be able to hold these two things together. And what this means is that while the Jews reject the gospel, there is a beloved care that we and God still extend to them through the fact that he did promise their ancestors salvation. And there, there's a humbling reality to this as we as Gentiles think about that. Because we realize that we do not support the root of ethnic Israel. The root supports us. Okay, This is us as a child kind of standing back in the, the analogy where the Jew's like, hey, that's mine. And, and we're like, 
kind of, yeah, kind of is. You were promised a lot. We are grafted into something much more older, much more stable than we are. Right? We are the olive wild shoot that is grafted in. So, so going back to the child analogy, this is where God the Father steps into the room with an upset Jewish child who's jealous and a Gentile child holding a Jewish toy in his hand, looking guilty, wondering if this was approved by the Father or not. Is this okay? Can I play with this? This is kind of where we are. And Romans 11 gives us a view of God that's able to look at both Jew and Gentile and ask heart-probing questions. Uh, we, we might imagine the father questioning to the Jewish child, Son, where'd you get that toy? Did, did you pay for that? Were you the one that earned that toy? What earned you that privilege to pay for that toy? Did you, uh, did you buy it with your money? Was that your allowance money, or did I gift that to you? Okay. That's how we ought to be thinking about it. That's what the Jew starts to realize. You know what? I wasn't upkeeping the way I should have. I didn't earn this, and it was a great privilege and joy to, to be following and playing with this. So this reroutes the entitled jealousy uh, of a Jew to gracious gratitude. That's, that's where Paul is leading this jealousy to. It's to gracious gratitude and what God has done. He doesn't want to leave it at jealousy. He wants them to be able to embrace all that God has given to them. So the Jews do not have a right to claim salvation if they're approaching it as a family privilege. That's not how salvation works. But, but, but Paul is trying to provoke them to realize, no, you are given it as a gift. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. He says, these are yours. So likewise, the Gentile realizes the great value in a heritage. Now, this is something that we don't uh, play with enough, as I was uh, to say, going along with the way that we've been talking about this in the sermon. We don't embrace all that we have been given in Christ Jesus. We get all the heritage that Jesus has as a Jew. We, we get to call Abraham our, our father, but only through Jesus. So as regards election, the Jews are our beloved. Okay? That's the way that we need to extend our heart towards them saying, yeah, that's an amazing thing. that We've been grafted into that. We, we've been grafted into a beautiful story, much less wild than our past. The, the Gentiles, let's be honest, we come from paganism. We come from the crazy, wacky stuff out here. And we've been grafted into a much more stable, beautiful uh, plan where God has been working this out over the ages. So again, grace, gratitude, where we both come together and say, amen, look what Jesus has done in me as a Gentile, grafted me into this thing. And the Jew says, yes, we had this all along. Why did I forsake this? Why didn't I not see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that I've been waiting for? So church... My encouragement to you is to take this gratitude that we all should have, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, what race you come from. If you believe in Jesus, take this grace and gratitude that God extends to you and reflect on these things and let that be what fuels your Thanksgiving this week. You're getting ready to, to go through a time of Thanksgiving. Connect your heart to what God has actually done to you in Christ Jesus. Perhaps the topic of Israel will come up. Maybe it won't. I don't know. How will you, though, reroute it to Christ to, to, to see where Christ has left everyone satisfied in the work that he's already accomplished for his people? That's where it needs to go, to where you're taking every thought captive, you're destroying our arguments, you're destroying every lofty opinion, making it obey Christ Jesus, where Jesus becomes the thing that you can both rest in, rather than both of you spouting off the headlines, invoking even more anxiousness. Okay? Why can't we bring it back to Christ and what he's already done for us? How will you revel in the mystery of God like Paul when he ends this great subject saying in Romans 11, Oh, the depths, think about it, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift 
that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your plan of redemption is beautiful. It's something that we could not have ever expected. And Lord, we pray that as we see this plan of redemption unfolding, and we being privileged to be a part of it as Gentiles, Lord, let us take our calling seriously, and even the the Pauline tactics, as we see Paul is trying to evoke jealousy in the Jews. Help us to be able to model that well as we look at Paul's example and his heart for his people, the Jews. Lord, I pray that we would, as regards election, have a heart for them. Lord, I pray that you would, at the same time, help us to be able to hold up the Scripture to say that in regards to the gospel, those who don't believe, they are our enemies. Let us recognize that in our evangelistic tactics to realize that they are not being saved if they don't believe in Jesus. Let that be what fuels us all the more to love our enemies and call them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Help us to do this task. Lord, we know that it's of Jesus, whether or not he has saved us. Change our hearts today, we pray. We ask this all in his name. Amen. We continue worshiping this morning.